healing is possible. We share stories of people everywhere who have healed from their diagnoses. Powered by HealthRevolution.org I'm your host, Dr. Anup Kumar. Welcome to the Healing is Possible podcast. My guest today is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Dr. Esselstyn has been associated with the Cleveland Clinic since 1968. During that time, he served as president of the staff and as a member of the Board of Governors. He chaired the clinic's breast cancer task force and headed its section of thyroid and parathyroid surgery. His scientific publications number over 150. In 1995, he published his benchmark long-term nutritional research, Arresting and Reversing Coronary Artery Disease or Heart Disease in Severely Ill Patients. That same study was updated at 12 years and reviewed beyond 20 years in his book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, making it one of the longest longitudinal studies of its type. Dr. Esselstyn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I know it was a delight to be with you. So let me start with the most obvious question for a physician, which is that how does an endocrine surgeon become interested in coronary artery disease? Yeah, that was kind of unusual. By uh, uh, in 1979 or in 1980, I had been chairman of our breast cancer task force for several years, and by this time, I was getting pretty uh, disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim, and this led me to do a bit of uh, global research and it was really quite striking to find that there were cultures where breast cancer rates were 30 and 40% less frequent than the United States, for instance, like Kenya. And if you were to look at uh, rural Japan in the 1950s, uh, you would find that breast cancer was very in infrequently identified. And yet, as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, still pure Japanese American, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. Mm -hmm. Perhaps even more compelling was if you looked at uh, cancer of the prostate, in 1958, in the entire nation of Japan, how many autopsy proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? 18. Wow. Most mind-boggling public health figure I think I've ever encountered. But by 19... Uh, 78, 20 years later, they were now up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die from prostate cancer in this country this year. So it was along about this time that I uh, began to notice that there, I was encountering multiple cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And it seemed... Uh, that there would really be a lot more bang for the buck if we could look at heart disease. Because if we could get people to eat in a way to diminish and eliminate heart disease, it would all, in all likelihood markedly decrease the incidence of the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and pancreatic. So with that, uh, with that, uh, how did you make that association, though? How did you make that hypothesis that if you decreased heart disease, you would decrease cancer? Yeah, because it was so apparent that uh, the, the the way that 
that these countries were eating where there was so little uh, in the way of cancer. I mean, Japan and Kenya and others, uh, it just seemed to me that there would be a more uniform uh, uh, appeal to uh, look at the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, which was really a, a quite ashamedly for the fact that we hadn't picked up on this. And, and to this day, it still is. When you think that we've known for over a hundred years that there are multiple cultures on the planet where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent and how shameful it is to think that we haven't acquired those characteristics, that nutrition that was so protective and it was protective not only from heart disease, but it was protective from cancer. And so that, uh, it just seemed to me that you would be in a much better uh, position to persuade people to give up foods that was killing all them and all their relatives because heart disease was seen to me so much more common yeah. than being able to find this, the same cancer in every family. Okay. Heart disease was, so, uh, but I didn't jump right in because I was a, quite frankly, I was a cholesterol holic. I grew up on a Aberdeen Angus beef farm. I was a dairy, also a dairy farm. And uh, it was Dr. Uh, I think it was Prochaska from Rhode Island who indicated that when you make a lifestyle change, you go through these phases of pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, and maintenance. Well, I was over here somewhere between pre-contemplation and contemplation, wavering, knowing that, knowing that I was going to do this study, mm -hmm. but uh, I didn't really know uh, quite when I'd get it started until it was uh, one day in uh, 1984 in April. And I was in New Haven with my wife at a uh, surgical meeting gosh the papers were kind of dull the weather was terrible but they always have a banquet right after these and at the banquet the waitress put in front of me a plate and the roast beef was so enormous it was draped over the sides and i was shaking my head at this and my wife looked at me and said are you not going to eat your roast beef and i said no this is my epiphany and she said, well, then I'll have it. So now, uh, sadly, uh, Anne's mother had died of, at age 52 of breast cancer. And <clears throat> two weeks after that meeting, her sister came down with breast cancer. And then she looked at me and said, I'm with you. So it was in April of 1984 that we started this program. And it was after we'd done this for a year, I went to the chairman of cardiology and asked if I could say a few words at the cardiology meeting. And I started this study and I said, I needed about 24 patients. I know it was a small study, but uh, I still had all my surgical obligations to carry out. Now, at this point, had you, had you tried this with one or two people you knew, or this was the first time you were going to try this? First, first time. Okay. Yeah. And that's, so it started in uh, 1985, yeah. got, it, got it going. And then we 
fortunately, we had a fairly dramatic result. And uh, the patient is in my book at the Pulse Vine. This is a gentleman who, in addition to heart disease, had a partially blocked artery in his thigh so that walking over the skyway to my office, he had to stop wow. five times to let his calf uh, get through the claudication. And uh, we had a, a documented pulse volume at his right ankle at that time at, at the baseline. And then I still was so focused on his heart, I forgot all about his leg until about 11 months into the study. Uh, one day he said, Dr. Esselstyn, do you recall when I first started seeing you, I had to stop five times crossing the skyway to that office? And I said, yeah. He said, you know, the last month it got to be four times, three times, two times. He said, you know, I don't stop anymore. The pain's gone. I said, back you go to the vascular lab. And we repeated the pulse volume at his ankle. It was now double. Wow. His pain was gone. This was doubled. And we now had absolutely unequivocal, <clears throat> rock solid, irrefutable science that food and food alone could reverse cardiovascular disease. Now you're going to maybe say, well, what about the statin drugs? Well, this was 1986. We didn't have any statin drugs. Yeah. Oh, I see. And so that's interesting. So your book is titled Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, but you're really talking about cardiovascular disease as a whole, because uh, just for the audience, you're talking about endothelial damage or damage to the inside of the blood vessels that's caused by this, this diet, meat-based and oil-based diet, which when you remove those factors, you're saying the endothelium itself heals and endothelium is basically throughout all the blood vessels. So you're talking about heart disease, but then also stroke and peripheral arterial disease yeah, down in the, in the legs maybe, and the arms. Yeah, let me reinforce that, reinforce that a little bit further because just 10 days ago, I got a letter from a woman who <clears throat> I had counseled a year or two ago and she recounted the story of her 78 year old sister <clears throat> who in September of 2021, roughly six months ago, had three strokes within two weeks. Uh, she temporarily lost her speech for two weeks, but fortunately that came back. And then the sister who had had the treatment shared with her sister how important it would be for that she do this. Obviously the neurologist was totally uh, against it and said, no, that this never works. It's crazy to think that diet is gonna help. But she did well and it was just, two weeks ago, in, uh, actually in February of this year, he repeated the study of this artery that was going to the frontal lobe that was 90% blocked, 93% blocked at the original stroke. And now at the follow-up was 70% blocked. And he was, he, the neurologist was aghast. He had never seen anything like it. Yeah, amazing. So it, does, it does affect the arteries of the leg the arteries of the heart and the yeah. arteries of the brain. Yeah. So when you got, I mean, the rest is history in a sense. I know you got great results from that initial cohort. Um, when you got those results, well, first of all, briefly, what were the initial results of that first cohort where there must have been that, that, that excitement in the air of, you know, what's going to happen? When you got that, I'm sure you must have talked about it with your colleagues and um, I'm sure with those same cardiologists who you had spoken in front of. So what were those results and what was the response from cardiologists? 
let's just say that <clears throat> they were extremely cautious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, for the long, well, the question was, you know, Dr. Esselstyn, your diet is, <clears throat> is extreme. Uh, this study was not randomized. It was not a large study. What makes you think that you could ever repeat this with a larger group and get similar results? Well, we did. And this time it wasn't uh, 18 patients. It was now uh, 198 patients. Uh, 77, uh, 177 or 89.3, almost 90% were adherent close to four years. And uh, absolutely, it was stunning to think that uh, during that time, there were no further cardiac events, except in one patient who mm. totally misbehaved when he was in China it off the economy he had a small, he had a tendency to have hypertension. He had a small cerebellar stroke from which he recovered. Okay. But when you compare these with some of the better known cardiovascular studies, there's a 30 fold difference. Yeah. So in, I think you said 190 or so patients who were adherent, meaning they, they stuck with the nutrition plan. Oh, 177. 177. That they were adherent, and there was uh, 21 who were non-adherent. And then that same time period, 62% of them had disease progression. Got it. So of the people that stayed with the program for over three years, only one out of 170 plus had any and, and he and actually, actually he should have been in the non-adherent category, but I right. said, I, yeah, I can't have anything be a hundred percent. Nobody will believe it. No, so. Nobody would believe you. I can guarantee you that. That's right. That's right. Okay. So uh, you've been, so 1984, you've been doing this for over 35 years now. Right. Um, can you give us an idea of the overall numbers, maybe not exact, but generally like the general numbers of people that have been through this program and, and the results you're seeing? Over 1,500 people uh, that I personally have counseled. <clears throat> and, uh, but to, to look up, uh, I mean, certainly they get in touch with me if, they, if there were problems. Yeah. But to, uh, it took me uh, close to two years just to <clears throat> do the, the follow-up study that I just discussed that was published in the Journal of Family Practice in 2014. And it, so it, it would, when you try to do a phone calls to 1500 people, uh, you, know, you, you bit off a little bit more than you can chew. <laughs> right, right. You do have a, is it a, a weekly or a monthly or some kind of seminar where people yes. come to Cleveland yes. and you teach them, right? Well, they don't come to Cleveland anymore because of the pandemic. Right. Um, Okay. all done by zoom and virtual but okay usually it's about 18 to 20 patients uh, all of whom have cardiovascular disease they are all self-referred they are self-referred these are patients who uh, i guess the great majority now are those that come and they they say dr esselstyn uh, i've been told that i have to have a stent i don't want to have it i've been told i have to have bypass surgery i don't want to have it and if those patients are in the an absolute, if they're in an emergency, a stent or life or bypass perhaps could be life saving. But the great majority of these obviously are in a stable situation. And uh, 
when they adhere to the program, there's absolutely no reason that they have to have uh, these interventions, which sadly, uh, none of the present drugs, none of the stents, none of the bypass operations have one single solitary thing whatsoever to do with the causation of the illness. Right. You, so well, frequently you hear of a patient who had their first stent. Lo and behold, they had the second stent. Lo and behold, second, third, fourth, and fifth stent. I encountered a patient who came to see me who had had 51 stents. We call them railroad tracks in the ER. Stent after stent after stent after stent. Yeah, but that's almost an invitation to larceny. I mean, it's so yeah. it's so shameful that uh, that we really aren't treating the causation of this illness. And to, to back away and say that patients won't follow it, that is correct. Patients will not follow a significant lifestyle change uh, depending upon how the uh, the message is presented. Yeah. For instance, uh, I think that if you're going to have somebody have a, a, a major lifestyle change, you must show the patient respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them my time. So our monthly seminar for these patients is five and a half hours. I know very few physicians or cardiologists who will spend five and a half hours with the patient. And that's not the, and that's not the, the sum of it because my secretary will give me a list of everybody who is coming to our seminar. And I insist, usually for 10 days beforehand, I am personally will call each of these patients so that I can get my arms around their story. <clears throat> and at the same time, provide them with an opportunity to ask questions of me. So that coming to this five and a half hour seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. And I think that is what accounts for the fact that it's compliant. For instance, I try to make it very clear to the patient that the reason they have their disease in the first place, in the decades prior to being diagnosed, they have so trashed, so injured, so compromised, their endothelial production of nitric oxide, they no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves from making blockages in plaque. So when a patient really embraces and almost rejoices the fact that they understand the science, they understand how they themselves created the disease and how we are empowering them as the locus of control to halt and reverse their disease, why would anybody with a brain in their head after they understand this, come up to me and say, say Dr. Esselstyn, really interested in what you had to say, but Lois and I are gonna have our 35th wedding anniversary in a couple of weeks. And I guess I'm gonna be destroying the, the few remaining endothelial cells that I have. <laughs> Not, gonna right, so. Not gonna happen. Yeah, so for the, for, the, for the audience, what Dr. Esselstyn is talking about is, and this is not only true of, of cardiovascular disease, but in general, many of the treatments that we use are treating the symptoms and treating the downstream effects of any disease, right? So in, in diabetes, if you're taking insulin, we're kind of trying to make up for the fact that the pancreas is not making insulin or that the, our cells are resistant to the insulin that we're already producing. In hypertension, if you're taking an antihypertensive, the blood pressure is already high, the vessels are already tight, and then we're taking some medicine to 
counteract that, but not addressing why they're tight to begin with. And in heart disease, it is uh, endothelium or that kind of coating on the inside of the vessel that becomes inflamed and caked and starts to crust and then basically causes a blockage. And so, uh, you know, we can stent it, meaning you, you put in a device and you open it up. And so you increase the diameter of that vessel, but whatever caused it to close to begin with is likely still happening. So it's going to close again. And so um, the idea here is that we are getting at the root cause by changing what's causing the inflammation, which is the kind of food that we're eating. So do you, do you educate, do you have a different kind of seminar or different kind of um, talk for physicians than the general public? And have you, do you have another strategy for trying to approach physicians and health systems with this as opposed to the general public? Very little difference at all, because it's for the, <clears throat> we wanna keep what I call the dignity of simplicity. And I think that if you keep it very simple for physicians, uh, they're, they're much more likely to grasp it, as a matter of fact. But it's, uh, uh, it's interesting. We had, had a number of physicians who have come, they're aware of the program, they've come through. And if I call them later, and I'll, often I'll hear them say something like, well, you know, Dr. Esselson, I really can't seem to get my patients to adapt your program. I know it works, but I just can't seem to get paid. And then if I say something like, well, would you share with me, how is it you try to make the patients understand this? He said, well, I know your program was five and a half to six hours, but he said, Dr. Esselson, you have to understand that, that I'm really a very busy physician. And I said, does that mean you give them what, 12 or 15 minutes without the spouse? I said, if you think that's going to work, I don't. I know of no situation where you're going to get lifestyle transition as a success with that approach. And I said, why don't you just try, take the panel of patients that have this disease, and commit yourself to a Wednesday afternoon where you can really. You're welcome to. I'll give you any and all my slides that you want, and uh, or maybe you can do it on Saturday morning. We have had a, a physician from New York who really bought into this <clears throat> lifestyle, you know, totally, completely. And, and he is from Montefiore in the Bronx and he has done an absolutely wonderful job. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and he is, uh, because he's committed to it, he's made a, uh, a commitment to the time that he spends with these patients and he obviously is getting stunning results. Are you seeing health systems? So this, for example, Montefiore, is the system adopting it? So I can see different scales, right? So an individual and a family adopts it. That's one kind of, that's one strategy. And then maybe a physician adopts that. So all of this physician's patients now have this exposure and this education. And then there's another scale where you get maybe a department, uh, a cardiology department, a GI department, and then maybe even a health system or hospital. Have you seen any adoption at the departmental or health system level? Yes, You know, there are, a, there are a number of physicians who have individually come to this, but I have to share with you something that I have resisted probably for the first 25. I knew it right from this day one, but 
I've resisted saying it for the longest time. What do you suppose the compensation is if you put in a stent or do a bypass compared to talk to somebody about Brussels sprouts and broccoli? Yeah. And how many hospitals do you suppose are dependent upon the cardiovascular department to really keep them uh, really solvent in a highly profitable state of? Yeah. We took away the income from the stents and bypasses and that from those institutions or firms. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a significant change. Yeah. And, and it's, it's uh, so you, you've got a lot of factors that you're up, you're kind of up against. Matter of fact, I was, uh, I was asked to join the American College of Cardiology about six years ago, which is a little unusual for a retired general surgeon to be asked to join. Yeah. American College of Cardiology, and they asked me to become a part of their commit, uh, their nutrition committee, which I have done. One of the jobs of the nutrition committee is to try to educate cardiologists about the causation of the illness that they've been designated to treat, because at no time, either in medical school or in their postgraduate training, do cardiologists ever receive training about uh, nutrition. And so they don't really feel very comfortable uh, or confident about it uh, or getting it to their patients or some may turn it over to a dietitian. They like to say, well, I get my patient. What does a dietitian know about what we're talking about? Who runs the schools that the dietitians get their training in? Try, and they ask them they're eating meat, dairy, eggs. Come on. Uh, it's... Got a, we've got a long ways to go. It's a challenge, but the fact that we've, as a, you know, when was the American Cal, uh, no, when was the American Heart Association formed? 1924. 1924. Now they they even knew back in 1924 that there were many cultures on the planet where heart disease was non-existent. 1949, what the American College of Cardiology was formed. At no time did either of those leading physician organizations for cardiology ever truly grasp and bring to this country the nutrition that is totally protective against this disease. It's yeah. really it's embarrassing and it's unforgivable. So let me ask you, so you are a fellow of the American College of Cardiology as, an, as a surgeon. And the only reason you were invited, I mean, the only reason you could have been invited is obviously because you were yes. helping people with cardiovascular disease. Uh, and the only reason and the only way you were doing that was with the nutrition plan. And so my question is, I guess, twofold. One, how long have you been a member of the Academy of the College of Cardiology? And then how long does the education really take? I mean, you have patients who, who get this education shortly and, and what has been done with you being a member on the nutrition committee? What is the result of that? Yeah, but so is, so is Dean Ornish on the committee. So is yeah. Neil Barnard. So is Robert Osfeld. So is yeah. Monica Agarwal. I mean, we have all these colleagues who totally embrace and, and are effective in this. So it's, uh, you can see that it's just, it just, it's like trying to turn the Queen Mary no, I, I get that. I get that. I'm, I'm wondering. So I don't know, you have meetings every few months or maybe every year or so. And 
I mean, there's not that much new to say, except look, there's more evidence. Look, there's more evidence. Look, there's more evidence. So does anything happen? Do you, do you kind of give a talk yearly and, and everything stays the same or what's the, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what happens at these meetings uh, and year after year, because there's no, at least I don't think there's new science. I mean, the science is, is there already. So what's happening? Uh, the, uh, the nutrition committee does uh, use its members to uh, produce papers. Okay. And the papers are usually fairly effective against, you know, showing the downside of, of meat, uh, the upside of plant-based, trying to ch challenge some of the, because every month or two, there's some idiotic paper that comes out that is totally, Misle totally misleading and that is that has a, a challenge but it's a you know it's it's a labor of love you just gotta you stick with it it's it's just but it's so tragic to think that people are literally <laughs> think of it this way what have we got we almost lost uh, eight we've lost over eight hundred thousand from the uh, from the pandemic 800,000 and everybody, it's all in the headlines. Everybody knows about it. Every day there's talk about the number of people dying from, how many people die from heart disease in a year? 800,000, what do we what do we say about that? Oh, it's unfortunate. Right, right. And that's, you know, that, that touches on many things because we talked about department adoption and, and health system adoption. Um, the, the nutrition plan you're talking about um, what is your experience in how it affects other other diseases, other conditions, uh, quality of life in general beyond only no, cardiovascular it's, disease? It's the, greatest, it's the greatest gift that we have in our toolbox. But for instance, right, right now, if you, I've, I really see what is coming in medicine is what could really be a seismic revolution. And the seismic revolution is never going to come about from another pill or another drug or another stent or another bypass. The seismic revolution is going to come about when we in the profession have the will and the will, grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them to simply annihilate chronic illness because it's not only heart disease. When you take a patient who is hypertensive and diabetic and has heart disease and they get it. Their heart disease disappears. Their hypertension disappears. Their uh, diabetes disappears. Their risk for vascular dementia disappears. If they have Crohn's disease, it disappears. Ulcerative colitis, it disappears. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis disappears. Allergies and asthma, come on. We've never had a tool so safe, so effective. No, no, no added expense. What do you think about it? You, you got to eat. Yeah. You've, you've seen multiple sclerosis disappear. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, actually, in a cardiologist from Harvard who, uh, who came on board. Yeah. Wow. So... So going back to the the, why it hasn't been are you familiar with ischemia? Yeah, 
I mean, come on. Yeah. Here you have 5,000 people. Explain it. And opt three groups. Optimal medical therapy with bypass. Second group, optimal medical therapy with stents. Third group, optimal medical therapy. Five years, at the end of five years, no difference. But I was horrified at the optimal medical therapy. I mean, how many of them over five years didn't have a drop of oil? How many of them over five years chewed a green leafy vegetable six times a day? Yeah. With a little bit of balsamic or rice vinegar on it. Yeah. 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 And I think that speaks to also uh, department wide and health system adoption is that we're, in a sense, the, the focus and the message comes through with heart disease and cardiovascular disease, but we're not really only talking about heart disease and cardiovascular disease. You're talking about an entire organ system kind of effect. So what do you think about nutrition? I know what you think about nutrition in general, but how about nutrition relative to other factors like um, social and emotional connection, uh, adequate rest, movement, or exercise? Where does nutrition fall among all of these? And how do you see the relationship among absolutely these? The, absolutely the most. Listen, you can exercise to your blue in the face. You can meditate to your as much as you want, but if you're eating the wrong diet, forget it. You got You've got to have whole food, plant-based nutrition. That's the core. Now, exercise is marvelous. It's a it's a bonus. Stopping smoking. Be very very careful about alcohol, uh, and you know, continue to develop your personal relationships. Be sure your sleep is adequate, and yeah, I mean, all those are other things that can add to it, but. If you don't have the right nutrition, you're finished. So one more thing I wanted to ask you is to clarify your nutrition plan is um, to is plant based and includes avoiding meats, um, avoiding dairy um, and eggs, and also avoiding oil and sugar. And yeah, go easy on sugar and go easy on sugar. And um, I know in the in the United States and in the West in general, that sounds like you can't eat anything. Now, in, in some other countries, that's not true. You can have a feast um, and still do that. But that thinking is there is like, OK, so I'm just eating dry salads all day. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Well, that's that's yeah, that's crazy. What you're eating when you're you're eating this way, you're eating a marvelous range of all these whole grains, W-H-O-L-E, whole grains for your cereal bread, pasta rolls, and bagels, 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans. All these marvelous red, yellow, green, leafy vegetables, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, and some fruit. And uh, there are countless wonderful, wonderful recipes. As a matter of fact, my wife and daughter have uh, uh, made a cookbook, uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease Cookbook, plus they have another dynamite one coming out <laughs> in uh, this August. And my own uh, prevent and reverse heart disease has 140 recipes in it. So that really there are a, an enormous range of delightful me menus that uh, there. Uh, you've got to cautious pe caution people about going to restaurants because Restaurants, almost universally, all every menu will have oil. For instance, uh, when I 
I'm counseling somebody and I talk to them about uh, restaurants. I say, you know, when you go and sit down, you don't take the menu. And as you're reading it over your shoulder, say to the waitress, go easy on the oil. I said, that isn't gonna work. You turn your chair, you look the waiter or the waiter squarely in the eye. Understand that I am deathly allergic to a single drop of any oil. Now they get it. They sit down by you, they go over the whole menu. There's not a darn thing that you can have. Everything has oil. So you ask for the chef. Lo and behold, the chef comes back, understands that you can't have a drop of oil. No thing that has animal protein, no dairy, no sugar. Comes back 20 minutes later, a beautiful plate of beans and rice, or it may be a baked potato with a vegetable. But going out to eat is never an indication to destroy more endothelial cells. <laughs> well put. Yeah, and I think that's why people get the idea then, okay, it's just salad, but this speaks to a change. You know, it's obviously a change in, in what we eat, um, but it's also a change in how we live, right? And how we think about food, because there's a planning process now involved. It's not a last minute process. And there's a, there's a, there's a bigger change, I think, which is why it's called a lifestyle change. It's, although it sounds like it's what you eat, it's really how you think about food in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so one more thing I want to touch on is um, olive oil. We hear about olive oil all the time, the wonders of olive oil, how good it is. There are studies that show that if you take olive oil, your risk of heart disease is lower um, than other oils. Can you comment on olive oil since part of your plan is not having any oil? Yeah. What is olive oil? It's a fat. It's a fat, right? It's a fat. Monounsaturated, saturated, and polyunsaturated. And to really understand it, I dug into the, uh, the, uh, the medical li literature on olive oil studies. And I've summarized those in the editorial that I wrote for the uh, International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And the other thing is important is be sure when you look at studies that suggest that olive oil is going to be beneficial, it's always a sort of a compromise. It never arrests and reverses disease. It, uh, it's a little bit like saying if you have a automobile and you have five passengers in it and you run into a wall at 90 miles an hour, they all die. However, if you do this at 20 miles an hour, you know, a significant percentage of those still survive. Well, it, that's the olive oil car. And in other words, have you ever seen a single study where you have patients who are seriously ill with heart disease and they're given all this oil and they actually arrest and reverse disease? I don't, I don't, I've not, I've never seen that. Uh, so when you have a product that is going to make you fat, it's going to make you hypertensive, 
It's going to make you perhaps diabetic if you become obese. And if it contributes to injury to your lining of your arteries, that's a hazard. And you'll have to be very careful to look at the studies and to be sure that those that are pushing olive oil, where does the funding come from? So often that funding, and that's an absolute red flag when you see that. How do you, how do you see and talk about other programs like Dr. Ornish or um, I know T. Colin Campbell studied this in the China study um, yeah. and other, other people who are adopting similar, but maybe not exactly the same, especially with regard to um, oil, no oil uh, and dairy, no dairy. You know, there are variations in the program. So how do you see Dean, responses Dean, Dean, based on these variations? Dean does not use oil. Colin Campbell does not use oil. Neil Barnard does not use oil. Okay. Is that a change? Because I, I was not aware of that. I thought, I thought, you know, I don't know if it was Colin Campbell or Dean Ornish, but this was, this was maybe 10 to eight years ago that I looked at this and I thought oil was part of some of their reversal programs, but maybe I was wrong. I'm sorry. Could you repeat yeah, that? Maybe I was wrong. I, this was about eight to 10 years ago that I looked at it and I thought there was some difference in, in your plans, but maybe there is not. Yeah, I think that one of the things that uh, I think ex expresses how Dean and I have looked at each other's and uh, it's a different way up the mountain. Yeah. And Are the results comparable? I have the utmost respect for what, uh, what Dean was doing. Uh, I was totally unaware of it until we were several years into our program, and he has uh, he's also uh, can be, uh, been supportive. And I think that uh, you know the, the 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 key here is the end the end result. And there's so yeah. it's much more important to emphasize the similarities uh, rather than the. A, a difference of a few nuts here or there or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think the key is the results. I think what you're talking about is. We will, uh, we will, we will compete our results with anybody on the planet. And the yeah. reason that our results are so successful, I've discovered is that no, I found that nobody else is as mean as I am <laughs> because I can't, I hate to see failure in my patients. And that's why I, yeah barely dig into the the details yeah and uh, and so some uh, may feel that's being a little bit harsh but on the other hand what it does is when you are this detailed and you just get the patients to understand that i want them to eliminate any food that is going to further injure their endothelial cells uh then they get it right and i think i think that's why you get um what seem to be unbelievable results and why you have to uh, label people who are um, in, not inherent in the program as adherent just to, just to get a, a fallout because um, you are very particular, I know, with your program, but you also take a great deal of time with the people that, that you're working with. And I think, I really think that's what makes all the difference. It's, it's difficult to make, a, unless you're personally significantly motivated unless you have some support or unless somebody's walking you through that. So I think that makes a big difference. I know uh, I can share my story with me. The way I learned about your program was when I finished my residency 
And, um, you know, I'd been doing, you know, working all night, pizza, the wings, you know, whatever it was, just not thinking about nutrition, not planning essentially, and just doing it by the seat of my pants. And also going through a lot of different changes during residency came out and then I was, I was practicing and, and just, there was so much happening with the mind and it was cloudy sometimes and, and managing it was difficult. And that's when uh, I happened upon your book. I still don't remember how I came upon the book. Um, and it, it reminded me of many of the things I had heard and saw growing up about the benefits of plant-based nutrition. And uh, I did that and probably within a week to two weeks, I think within, I already knew it was the right thing. I felt it was the right thing. Within a week to two weeks, the mind completely cleared up. Um, the body felt light. It felt exuberant. Um, and so I think it's important for people to know that, you know, it's called prevent and reverse heart disease. It's not only heart disease, it's cardiovascular disease. And it's not only cardiovascular disease. It's really a, a whole organism approach and, and works on so many levels because what's good for the body is, is good for the whole body. So I think that's an important point to make. Thank you for that. And um, the name of the podcast, Dr. Esselstyn, is Healing is Possible. So when you hear that phrase, healing is possible, what comes to mind? Well, it means when healing is possible, it really indicates that you're going to be able to, if somebody is going to be able to embrace these significant lifestyle changes, that it, it, it is within their purview to be the determinants of their health. And nothing, 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 nothing is as important as having your health. Everything else is, is secondary. The stories shared here are the experiences of the speakers. They're not intended as medical advice. Join our network or simply share your story at healthrevolution.org. Healing is possible.